previously on Napcast. I found that especially with neurodiverse folks, like my son, life is experienced from a very like literal perspective. Um, subtle verbal cues, body language, and especially like sarcasm really don't automatically mean anything to them. Um, others may experience the world, um, others with neurodiversity may experience the world as like this constant assault on their senses, right? Um, certain textures, smell, sounds, feelings of, of constant hyper arousal um, seem to be like coming from out of nowhere and attacking them. And so their um, behavior is to like either protect themselves from that onslaught of noise or that, that certain you know scent that they smell when they walk into a room or or to to lash out right um, to remove whatever it is that's or try to remove whatever it is that's causing um, this this hyper arousal for them to create you know some some diversity in our school system, the IDEA Act came out and, and looked at it as a way of having some rules saying that yes, able, disabled children need to be part of a school community and how do we do that? Um, unfortunately, we brought them, we brought children into the, the, the school building, but we're still in some ways keeping them out of or away from uh, typically, neurotypically, the um, developing students in that we will put them in a special education classroom or we'll put them in a, a classroom that's um, a self-contained classroom um, because they said that that's a, a way, a better way of meeting, you know, the child's needs versus bringing the child into the classroom um, in the community, having them be a part of the community and not be othered. Um, bringing the child in the classroom with a support person in the classroom, you know, could be a better fix instead of having them um, spend their day away from the rest of the classrooms and, and rarely um, having opportunities for, for interacting with their neurotypical peers, you know, um, or what they call able-bodied peers. And what, what I think um, we could do, you know, again, to just highlight and make it equitable and is to look at universal design, right? Universal design tells us so much about how when we are doing things for one group of people, we are designing things for one group of people who might need some additional supports. We're making life easier for everyone. Um, just thinking about like, Going, let's go to architecture for just a second, right? And and ever we take for granted now that we have these doors that slide open and close with a sensor, right? Um, and those doors make it convenient for everybody to be able to walk in and out the door without having to touch the door, especially now in the time of you know um, what you were talking about earlier about the vaccines, right? As you're entering and exiting buildings. Some people are creeped out these days to have to touch a door handle. Um, and so you have this opportunity to go in and out of a building with these, you know, amazing sliding doors that notice when you're coming and they open and then they notice when you've walked away and they close. 
Um, that's a, a, an example or a small example of universal design. Hey friends, welcome to the all new version of Napcast, a podcast co-hosted and produced by Nick and Mike, two male early childhood educators of color. What is this all about? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever uttered the words, I just want to listen and learn more? Then hey, you've come to the right place. This podcast is all about taking risks, leaning into your imagination and, well, being as curious as we are about how we can dismantle racism, sexism, and all the isms in our early learning environments. Oh, and this is also a place where we can kinda sorta just get weird with it. Together, we'll listen to insights and feedback from various educators of color working with our world's youngest citizens in direct and indirect ways. Just a thought of that should send chills down your spine. So, are you ready? Did you turn your headphones up? All right now. Good. Let's get it. With my son, my son is a huge empath, right? He is very empathetic to um, to younger children and to children who are um, who have some some disabilities. And so, what we found out for him that it really helped him to um, to really flex his empathy muscle because he was seen as a child who didn't have a lot of empathy, right? So um, to help him flex his empathy muscle, um, to be a helper and to help with the younger children, to help with children who, who needed some additional support um, in and around the building. And um, he got to really shine as a leader. And he, um, he is really, really brilliant with words. He is a, a, he's, always, he's always been very well read and has a vast, vast vocabulary. Um, and he loved reading. In kindergarten, he was reading in first grade level. And so, um, and, and socially and emotionally, he lagged behind, right? Socially, emotionally, he wasn't at kindergarten level, but he could read. Um, and so what they had him do is they, you know, we worked on having him lead a reading group. <laughs> in in one of his classrooms, he got to, to lead a reading group for, um, in the first grade, you know, so he got, he got to leave his kindergarten classroom, walk up to first grade and lead a reading group in first grade and then go back to kindergarten when it was time to go back and, and, you know, do some age, more age appropriate activities. But, um, you know, just making those changes as educators, thinking about ways that we can, um, you know, we can, we can change up what we're doing, right? Um, and sometimes it just takes someone to advocate for that, to take the parent and, and, and other educators to really 
be observant, right? Taking some time to just kind of like sit back, watch, listen, um, and and really reflect on what's happening, right? A lot of times I think we, we get so caught up in the day-to-day that we don't take that really, really important time to just reflect on, you know, how a situation went, whether it was, you know, a really good day or, or whether that day was especially challenging. And then really like trying to, to you know, deconstruct all of, of the things that happened that day where you can pinpoint like, oh, that was the point in time. It was that specific transition that just set this trajectory mm. for this specific child to go sideways. You know, it was a, you know, noticing a pattern. We know that every time we, we dim the light at nap time, we have a child who might have some trauma that we don't know. We don't always, we're not always aware of kids' traumas, right? But we notice that every time we dim the lights, this one child goes into hyper, hyper sensitive mode, right? So we need to, oh, we need to have a, pan, a plan in place, right? We need to have a plan in place for our friend who, who has some challenges around that time. And it isn't just because you know, the narrative with it is that as teachers and as adults, we want to give a child that they just don't want to sleep, right? It, it doesn't have to be that that's the narrative. It could be that there's a reason why that child doesn't want to go to sleep. We just haven't, we just don't know that reason yet. We don't know that that child might be suffering from um, night terrors and that every time they close their eyes at night and go to sleep, they have horrific nightmares, right? We don't, we don't know what sort of, um, past traumas or anxieties that they might have. And, and we're not, because we're not, we're not professionals. And like you said, we have so many children, black and brown children who are not diagnosed that are, that are suffering in silence because they're not getting support and treatment that they need. And there's also this whole thing about epigenetics that we, I mean, it's a whole other conversation that we haven't even gotten into, you know, where the traumas that we suffered and experiences, adverse experiences that we that are challenging us as human beings can cause changes, genetic changes in ourselves, in our bodies that we then can pass on to our future generations, right? So that's mind blowing when you start thinking about the 300 plus years of trauma that folks have suffered under, you know, and, and adverse experiences that they've had under racism, under, you know, police brutality, the, the extreme stress, you know, the toxic stress that adults suffered under that. And then, you know, then going on future generations, we're, we're starting to see more and more and more of this accumulation of children who are our truth tellers, right? So oftentimes we talk about looking to the past to get some answers for what we're dealing with today, but we also need to look to the future. Mm. And our little ones are these, 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 you know, small human beings that are coming into our world already having everything that they need to have within them 
you know, a lot of times one of my, I'm a lifelong learner, learner. So one of my favorite things about being a preschool teacher was that I was learning from the future. Mm. You know, I was learning from watching these amazing human beings that I was privileged to be in community with um, figure out, you know, how to become a society together, right? And there are times when, you know, they're, they're like our, our, our truth tellers. They're going to tell you when something is not right, right? They're going to tell us and they're going to be bold and they're going to be straight with how they, they talk to us about their emotions. They're going to be straight to us with how they talk about what is, is, is bothering them and what isn't bothering them. And sometimes they have the vocabulary for that. And sometimes they're still learning the vocabulary for that. But being keen observers and researchers and, you know, taking that reflection time is really a big part of how we're going to, you know, shift what it is that we're doing as, as classroom leaders and really focus on um on what we can do to support these community of learners as they're coming into our classrooms. And, and when you think about like the, the I thought of neurodiversity and, and neurotypical, changing that paradigm, right? So what is normative anyways? And we always talk about norms too when we're doing observations, right? And we're doing uh, assessments of children. And it's like, oh, this was normed by these people in this ivory tower. <laughs> Who did not to down downplay researchers, you know, PhDs. I know people work really hard for their degrees, but it's like we're when we get down to this level of, of being in the classroom with students, and we're bringing to bear all of this uh, research and all of this um, normative, observational stuff that says children need to do certain things at certain times on certain timelines. Um, and, and not leaning into, because a lot of, you know, a lot of our assessments also say that this is a continuum, right? I think a lot often as, as preschool teachers or just teachers in general, educators in the classroom, we tend to forget that spectrum piece, right? We tend to forget that this isn't, this, this isn't prescriptive, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That there's that there's a range, there's a range of behaviors. And I think we just need to lean more into that paradigm of looking at human beings as this range of behaviors. And you might see within that range some of these things happening, right? And um, and it's okay. You know, it's okay for, for that to happen. Um, and and I also want to caution us a little bit. Um, going back to what you said, Nick, about diagnosing kids and um, getting, because that, that sometimes can be a slippery slope into going back into pathologizing. Mm. Oh, good point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so we don't, we don't want to go to a place where we're, we're going back to pathologizing behaviors, but we really want to get to is we want to get to figuring out what is behind the behaviors, right? What is behind yeah. the behavior? What is what is what is happening? Um, and that takes time. It takes time to figure out what's happening behind behavior. And then how can we support that so that we have less of those behaviors and 
because those behaviors are not, you know, like when a child is in an agitated state emotionally or an agitated state, they can't, they can't, and then they can't reach calm. That's not good for that child either, right? And, and some of this stuff is so automatic. It's, it's that, you know, brainstem activity that yeah. sort of takes over, right? Um, and so we want to get them back to calm because when we get when we get people, when we get our human beings, our kids, our babies back to that calming state, then their prefrontal cortex can really kick in, and that's where all of that executive functioning stuff happens. Yeah. That's where all of that real deep, you know, like cognitive learning stuff really happens because we're able to um, to calm our emotions. Yeah. It's like that language and uh, ration, rationale really come together, um, yeah. the, a lot of that self-regulation. And one thing that you're bringing up, I mean, you're bringing up a lot of great things. And one thing that's resonating with me, though, is something that Mike and I have uh, reiterated over numerous episodes is that every behavior serves a need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's nothing random about these things that happen. And if we can, if we can hold on to that, like, really greatly in the classroom that every behavior serves a need, then how are we as educators making sure we're providing um, tools that are relevant to that child so they can find their individual success? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, getting, getting them to, um, you know, and getting us, not them, getting us to really think about, you know, our, our role um, as being more than just um, putting out activities and checking a box. <laughs> right? yeah. um, it goes a lot deeper than that. And um, in creating spaces where, you know, our diverse, you know, youth and Black, Brown, Indigenous, BIPOC children are, are you know, welcomed and, and supported, kids who might have some some traumatic reaction to something or some some big emotions about things, whether that be because they themselves experienced it directly or because it was something that they've observed or even if it's a survival, a, a genetic change in their, in their literally down to their DNA, mm-hmm. right? And their neurotransmitters that's, that's been handed down from their ancestors who had to develop a set of skills to survive, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So making sure that we are, you know, doing the best that we can to create space, to create understanding, awareness, um, because it is a difference between, you know, think about it, if we live in a world where when when someone is pulled over by the police because of they have a blinker, a broken taillight, right? Person of color is pulled over by the police because they have a broken taillight. And the reason why they're being pulled over is to be told they have a broken taillight and that they need to get that taillight repaired, right? But what happens in this split second is that there's all of these assumptions, there's all of these feelings, feelings that come up for that police officer about their safety, feelings that come up for that individual in the car about their safety, because they've seen what happens when people who look like them get pulled over by police. Um, 
if they could have this this understanding or this this space where they can be like, okay, how do I get back to calm? How do I get back to recognizing a threat instead of just acting on it, right? Um, and there's a lot of healing. There's a lot of healing that needs to happen. But when you are when you are in that moment, when you're in that time, and that person is someone who's neurodiverse, someone who might not be able to understand what you're saying because they process information at a different speed than you do, and it just takes them a minute. You know, if we had people who are supposed to serve and protect us, in their training, if they had been trained, instead of always recognizing a threat, learning how to recognize when people are in crisis, learning how to recognize when people might be neurodivergent and dealing with them in a way that was more compassionate versus mm -hmm. everything's a threat that I have to, you know, stop with, with, with these very life, you know, these life taking weapons that I have on my body, it could, it, it could be huge, a huge game changer for society, you know? And, um, and my, you know, like if I could like wave a wand <laughs> to this magical thinking world, you know, if, if it was, you know, if I could, if I could do that, if I could say, you know, let's, let's, Let's think about how, how are we even doing this? Why do we even have these like these weapons, you know, that we're bringing to to there's other there's other countries, other societies where they don't carry weapons. You know, their police force does not carry um, guns. Mm -hmm. You know, they have guns that are not they're they the people in their 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 community don't have an arsenal that they've amassed and keep in their homes, you know? Um, you know, what would it be like, like to imagine being and living in a community where we literally just use the tools that we came into the world with to solve our problems, yeah. <laughs> like just our hearts and our words, you and, know? You know, this is also gets into something that We've learned from Ijima Jordan, one of our friends um, here in Hollywood, um, that we often think about how we as educators are essentially law enforcement within the classroom, right? We might not have batons or guns or badges, right? But we can weaponize words. We can um, control children's bodies. We can police their bodies. We can police their thoughts and things like that. And that kind of leads me to just this idea of building an inclusive environment, right? We can do that universal design for learning guidelines. Um, we can dive deeper into reflective practices like you were saying and mentioning, right? So we're reciprocating to the adaptation of our environments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, with that, Mike, we can really take that lens of making sure, uh, and especially if we're looking at it through the lens of every behavior serving a need, you know, el eliminating our ableist language, you know, um, you know, and I, I do want to give people the opportunity to prepare themselves as a few, say a few of them as examples, you know, but what we're trying to do is 
bring awareness again to that self-reflective part. Like, am I using this language? And so if you, um, so, you know, take a moment to take a breath if this might be triggering for you. Um, but, you know, using words like, oh, that kid's crazy. Uh, these, these toddlers are a bunch of spazzes or saying normal children, right? Or mentally ill birth defects and, and other terms that you can kind of Google learn more about. And so our two questions um, are as follows, right? To be all formal, right? <laughs> Is what do families need to feel comfortable um, to let educate comfortable in to let educators know who their child is? Hey, let me let me pause you right there, Mike, um, just because of that, because uh, I gave that little question prompt, and because I do think that this that one question has a lot to answer for. So I wanted to give space for it. Mm. Um, and with an example is I've had families, especially families of color who, you know, we meet their children for the first time and their four-year-old isn't talking. Um, and in my own sort of early childhood development brain, I'm, I noticed some things that I'm like, oh, you know, like this would have, this would be nice to know ahead of time. So I can place them in the appropriate classroom ahead of time and to meet that child's needs because oftentimes it feels like um, parents may not give us the full information about their child and then the educators are at times left floundering trying to meet those needs of the child and there seems to be this expectation that all educators should have the knowledge and experience to to meet every child's needs so that's where this question comes from of like, what do families need to feel comfortable to be able to be very transparent about their child's needs? So yeah, let's pause there and ask Suzette that. And then uh, I can follow up my second kind of part two of that. Okay. Well, thanks Nick for that, um, you know, that context. And like I said, as a mom, um, you know, my son is now 14, a uh, couple of months away from 15 years old. And, um, you know, for, for us, and, and I find that it's also, you know, not, we're not, you know, rare, that it's common for, for other families who have children with differing abilities. It's, it really takes that trust. Um, and, and building trust to be able to um, to be able to be transparent um, about what is happening with our child. Um, sometimes there, you know, there's because of stigma, right? Because what we talked about earlier, because of societal stigma, because of cultural stigmas, um, we ourselves might not want to label our child as um, being a, having a, a specific behavior or putting a label on why they're not talking yet or that it's not okay for them to be talking yet. Um, you know, we, we need to build that, that, set that table and having that safe space. Um, going back to, to the story I told earlier about my students and their mom, you know, 
my being very, um, very supportive and, and transparent about how we're going to, you know, I, I, I told that I don't have all the tools. I don't have all the answers, but I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to find out what I need to do to support this child. Um, I'm willing to lean in on my uh, learning curve and, and really, and learn from you all. You know, you've been living, you, this is your lived experience with this child. What have you, what if, what's worked for you at home? What are some things that you've done? And, and if you are also at, at a space where you've come, you've hit a barrier and you're, you don't know what else you can do because you've tried everything that you thought you should be doing. You know, that's where we learn together. And, um, and having that regular, transparent, open communication. I, I, had, I have with me in my phone, <laughs> my cell phone, the private cell phone numbers of several school directors <laughs> and, um, and school principals over the past years that I could call because my child was in their school and you know, they could reach out to me and we would have dialogue. We would have dialogue and we would create community um, with one another and try and find common ground about how, you know, I, I knew what they needed for their community um, when my student was displaying some behaviors that they had seen were not safe or they had thought were not safe. And I also had questions for them you know, about what it was that they felt were, was unsafe about that particular behavior. Um, and it really was about creating dialogue, um, ongoing communication, and, and building trust, building trust in the relationship, building trust in um, and understanding in the expertise of both the parent and the expertise of the teacher. Um, and really getting down to what, what was at the, the main heart of the matter was what was best for the child, mm. right? What was absolutely best for the child. I've, I've seen heartache, you know, just from, from colleagues of mine, friends of mine, who they themselves as parents um, kept their child in a community that was not a great space for them because of the reputation of the school being a great school for kids, right? Um, so it works both ways. You know, parents need to also understand what's best, being the experts of our children, understand what's best for our kids and know when a, when, when a school is not a, a good fit and be okay with moving on to a place that is a better fit for our child, right? And at the same time, schools need to understand that they need to, you know, that they they can can do the best that they can, right? And still not be the right fit for a child. <laughs> exactly. Right. I think that what when it comes to that getting away from the expulsion thing and and the um, is, is the, the quickness, like the quickness to judge, 
we always have, and, and instead of leaning in on our compassion and flexing that compassion muscle, that compassion takes time. You know, compassion is, is long. It's not something that we're gonna make a decision in, you know, a day or two. It's not something that even we do a split decision within a couple of minutes or an hour. Um, I think that in my opinion, the more that we're leaning in on being compassionate with one another, um, the more that we're able to have dialogue and and build that trust, the better it is going to be for for the you know for the classrooms, for the teachers, for the children. We'll be right back. These last few months have brought upon a lot of changes in Nick's and Mike's lives, new cities new jobs, new adventures, us going independent. Shout out to all the peeps who supported us along the way. And now we have a new email address. You can email us at napcast206 at gmail.com for all your Napcast questions, ideas, and thoughts. And while our new website isn't quite up and running yet, you can still find us where you listen to all your music and podcasts. Spotify, Apple Music, Google, and so much more. So what should we chat about next? You tell us. And as always, thank you for listening. And I'm I'm glad that you brought up the like the long process of it, because my second part of this question is around policy and legislation. And we all know how sometimes that can, that can be a while. Um, so what do you think we should be considering policy-wise that will help in this dismantling of ableism from our early learning systems? Yeah, that's, that's a really good one. Uh, I think that we need, we need to Policy-wise, again, just going back to to the place where 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 we're looking at universal universalism and universalist design, mm. and applying that universalist lens in um, and building and building our policies to support that, right? Um, making sure that. When even even the the way that we we handle decision making in within our our centers, our schools, our communities, that we give our teachers a lot of autonomy um, to make decisions, and that we trust them to be the experts of what's happening in their classrooms. You know, it, it's really difficult when decision making is removed from the classroom. Our final decision making is removed from the classroom, and you have um, folks who aren't open to hearing the struggles of what's happening in the classroom and the day-to-day, making decisions on behalf of the classroom teachers, right? And I know that there are some policies that, you know, we can't, there's some, some policies we can't really have leverage with in that way, but for the most part, when it comes to changing even the, you know, depending on the program, for some for some folks, they can't even just 
rearrange a classroom to better suit themselves and their children without first having to get permission from a director to do that, you know? Um, they can't make changes to certain activities in the curriculum because there's this, you know, policy around that has to be pulled through a, a specific level of approval before they can make those changes. Um, so I think just, you know, really looking at allowing teachers to, to have that autonomy, allowing teachers to be able to even, um, you know, be in the room when decisions are being made about their classroom, be in the room when decisions are being made about how to support a family and, um, and always, you know, leaning in on creating this functional community, right? Because we know that there's two ways that communities can function. They can function well, or they can be dysfunctional. And, um, you know, getting to a place where everyone, everyone feels honored and their um, decisions are, are respected and they're, you know, trying to see things from both sides, both the parents' side as well as the teacher's side is really um, going to be really important when we start looking at how we look at, you know, the, the policies that are happening within the building and the classroom. When you look at broader policies, um, I have to be really careful about how I answer this question because I work for an institution that creates broad, broad policy impacting children and families. Um, it really is for us to, you know, for the larger policymakers to really make sure that we have folks at those decision-making tables who are directly impacted by the policy, right? So making sure that if we have a levy oversight com committee that is providing oversight to the policies that are created for a specific levy, and if those programs and policies are impacting youth, that we have youth at the table, right? That we hear from the youth who are being impacted by the programs that are being funded and the policies and the policy shifts and the changes. Um, it looks like, um, you know, when you have a policy, uh, I'll give you a great example of, of this. It looks like when you have a policy that is created at the district level, um, that says that students who live within two miles of a school will not be provided transportation services because we consider two miles a walking zone. Mm -hmm. But what if in that community, that two miles from your place of home to your school is not a safe walk mm. for you? Yeah, or you're not ab physically able to. Or you're not physically yeah. able to. Or there's no sidewalks. There's no. Or there's no sidewalks. Exactly. Right. So what if it's not that easy, right? And then you have this group of youth who are impacted by this policy, who are now working together to bring their voice to the community. You know, they advocated for themselves. They worked with leaders and activists, and they because they had to make a place for themselves at that table, right? And it took a long time. It took almost a year before they were able to then get a, get the policies 
change or to make a, a new policy that says that if you are a youth, you can get an ARCA card for free and you can ride public transportation to school, right? That's just a, a small example of how, you know, if we would have shifted our thinking as decision makers and already had those youth at the, the decision making table, had already listened to them about what it was that they needed and then created systems that and put those systems in place based on what they needed, you know, that that's a way of, you know, shifting decisions and shifting policies where we're actually serving the people who are being impacted by the policies. We're listening to their voice, right? We are um, and taking that information back and actually doing something with it. It's, it's not performative. It's not, oh, we say we're about something and we're gonna, we're gonna pretend to make some changes and shifts and we're gonna listen to you, but then we're really not gonna take what you're giving us and make some decisions with it that are gonna impact everyone in a positive way, right? And so, you know, um, I think as we wrap up our time together, you know, wanted to open up another um, uh, uh, with a provocation for for everyone and and for you to to give us more nuggets of wisdom, Suzette. What's something about disability and and neurodiversity justice that we need to explore, but didn't expl explicitly ask you about today? You know, one of the the largest groups of children. Are, are and students that we have right now um, that are are considered neuro, that fall under the category of neurodiversity and um, are these you know what we call twice exceptional children and thinking again about you know what society says about twice exceptional children specifically twice exceptional exceptional children of, of color BIPOC children is what gets focused on so much is the, the areas where they are not meeting normative standards um, and not on their brilliance. And where there's you know, legislation and policies and laws for supporting students um, through the IDEA Act and getting them supports for the areas where they um, need extra support, we don't often we don't have those same policies for supporting their brilliance, right? And for ensuring that they are being taught um, and that they're, they're, they're being taught individually in a way that's going to expand and stretch and meet their, um, their interests and their academic needs. And when we look at, you know, the world of neurodiverse justice, it really is about creating this community and space for all children to thrive, and particularly centering BIPOC kids and neurodiverse kids to, to really excel and to really thrive and to really feel that the things that could be barriers for them are not necessarily eliminated, 
but those barriers are easy to navigate. Those barriers are always gonna be there, but it's really about helping support them to get over those barriers, right? Um, because they're not automatically gonna go away. I wish they could automatically go away, but it really is, again, teaching them how to navigate and to see when barriers are coming up, but that doesn't mean that it's gonna end for you or it's gonna stop for you. But you are neurodivergent and neurodivergency is your superpower, right? And you can leap over these great big barriers <laughs> and continue to thrive and soar into the sky. You don't have to um, let those barriers define you or stop you from being who you are. Um, and I just, I wanna, to end, before we end, I want to just like leave a, a little quote or read a little quote that is sort of burning in my mind. Is, is that okay? Can I do that? Of course, yeah. Please. Yeah. So there's this quote by uh, a guy by the name of James Gallagher, right? And the quote says, failure to help the gifted child reach his potential is a societal tragedy, the extent of which is difficult to measure, but what is surely great. How can we measure the sonata unwritten, the curative drug undiscovered, the absence of political insight? They are the difference between what we are and what we could be as a society. So, you know, going back to that quote and really thinking about when we support our neurodiverse communities, what we're doing essentially, and, and we're leaning into neurodiverse justice, what we're doing is essentially supporting our own futures, right? Because you're helping those those inventors, those creators, those um, deep thinkers, um, those students who, and, and individuals who look at the world in a way that is so novel and so different, you know, than how neurotypical folks might see the world. And they're the ones that are gonna find the solutions to climate change. They're the ones that are gonna find the solutions to you know, supporting us through the next pandemic. Yep. Um, you know, these students that we have with us for just a short amount of time. You know, maybe it's one year. Maybe if we're lucky, we have them for two or three years. You know, we have an opportunity in early learning to really support them and pour um, into them all of our compassion, all of our love. Um, you know, highlighting their brilliance and giving them what they need to be the best future superheroes for our society and our world that we can, right? And I think that's the beauty of, of early learning um, and the beauty of, of the work that we do. Yeah, thanks for sharing all that, Suzette. Um, usually, uh, Mike and I have some final reflections and the thing that I'm walking away with is that re-emphasis and encouragement that we don't 
needs as human beings, just in general, and especially for young children and the expectations we hold for young children, we don't need to be perfect in every single thing. And sometimes perfection is equated to being normal, right? Quote, unquote. And, and it's okay for us to, to be great at some one thing or a couple things and, um, and be somewhere else with other things. And so I think if we hold that perspective as well as every behavior serving a need that we can reach that better future that you're talking about. And that's something that um, really resonated with me and, and it helped uh, reinforce my belief that, you know, what we do for children and in this case for neurodivergent children, we do for everybody mm-hmm. in the long run. Mike. And what I'm sitting with here today, I, I think the root of my interrogation is is really revolving around the singular question. And it's why don't I love my neurodiverse children as much as I love my black children, right? Because if you hear me going out in, in speeches and talks, I'm all black, pro-black, and I am constantly uplifting that. And so I need to go back and realize the role that ableism plays and ableism, which is deeply rooted in the ideas of anti-blackness, in misogyny, in um, colonialism, in capitalism, how that's playing out in my world, in my views. And so everything in which you said today, I am reminded why deconstructing ableism and really all of the isms, right? Um, racism, sexism, classism, the list goes on and on, um, is so important. Why we need to really reconstruct our, our ideas and our understandings through a strength-based approach, through um, affirmations. And it's just, once again, a constant reminder of why this lens um, this lens in which we're talking about is is precisely why we need this today. So on that note, um, we can't thank you enough for for the enlightenment, for the conversations, for the laughter and the joy that you brought into our lives. And I know the audience lives um, today through this conversation. So we so appreciate everything that you're doing for, for our black and brown babies. For, for the community um, and, and for everyone. Yes, thank you, Suzette. Thank you guys, this is a pleasure. I look forward to seeing all the great episodes that are coming next, so thank you. Thank you for this opportunity, I really appreciate y'all. And now for part two.